Follow along, please, as I read from John 21 in the first 14 verses. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. They were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I love coming to these passages where, in one sense, there is not a significant sermonic-type part of this passage. The instructions you get from Jesus are, did you catch any fish? Try the other side of the boat. Come and have breakfast. I mean, that's just such simple, real-life kind of language, you know? This is one of those passages that we come to and need to recognize that Jesus intends to not only interact with us, but to direct the everyday normal habits of your life. Even if it's fishing. Even if it's mundane. Whatever it might be. I've titled this message, Full Nets, because that seems to be such an obvious picture in this passage, right? This story might sound familiar to you, and you might be thinking, I've read this somewhere else, haven't I? Well, it's in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus calls Peter and the other fishermen disciples, and, and they've had the same instance. There's a whole night of fishing, and they've caught nothing, and Jesus says, well, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and the nets break in Luke chapter 5, and they can't carry all the fish in. They have an amazing catch. Well, this is certainly a different story, but there's a lot of connections there that we'll see. Perhaps we could say that the call of this passage is to trust the direction of the master in all aspects of life. It's kind of funny when you think about Peter and the others listening to Jesus here, because it might have been very easy for them if they would have known who it was at first to stop and say, look, I know this is Jesus, but when it comes to this real life stuff, he was a carpenter. We're fishermen. And it sounds just like a carpenter, somebody who knows nothing about fishing, I presume, <laughs> to say... Here's a strategy. Use the other side of the boat. Duh, what do you think we've been doing all night long? Of course we've thrown it on the other side of the boat. 
We're exhausted. We've tried everything. Trust the direction of the master in all aspects of life. You know, the last time I went fishing, I didn't have a fishing license, and I am I'm very afraid of like getting pulled over by a policeman or uh, by a ranger in a boat even. So when I went fishing with my dad and brother, and mostly it was to get Nora on the boat and to give her a experience fishing and all that, I didn't touch a fishing pole. I wasn't going to try. I enjoy fishing a little bit. But when I go fishing with my dad and brother, I kind of feel like what I presume Thomas felt like. Did you notice who went on this fishing trip? You might at first look at this and say, all right, John's setting us up to say there's a big revelation of Jesus. He's going to appear again to the disciples. But it starts with Peter going, I'm going to go fishing. And the disciples going, I mean, we're just doing the same thing as you, so we might as well go too. It almost sounds arbitrary, doesn't it? Like Jesus is alive and he's appeared to them and he's given them the Holy Spirit and this great message of a mission for them and then Peter's like, well, what do we do now? In one sense, I know every time I've looked at this passage before this week, really, I've always kind of thought as Peter is just going fishing because he just felt like that was the thing to do. He had nothing else to do. As if, all right, that whole Jesus part of my life is over now. But what he's actually doing is just reengaging with the rhythms of life. And in many ways, this would have been a very therapeutic thing for him to do. But he brings on six other disciples with him, two of them the sons of Zebedee. We know they were fishermen. But I love that John mentions Thomas here. Because again, Thomas is who I feel like when I go fishing with my dad and my brother. They're talking all this like foreign language of fish lingo that I have no idea. I know you put a worm on the hook, you throw it in the water, and you pray. Whether you actively pray or not, I mean, that's basically what happens, right? And they're like, no, you use the fish finder, and you get the squiggly one that spins around, and, and you you'd use this certain line, and this kind of, I'm like, it's a fish, guys. I love thinking about Thomas in this setting going, I'm going fishing now, all right, that's not something I typically do, but notice in the context of this, what happened the last time Thomas wasn't with the disciples? Jesus showed up. Do you think, and in this moment, Thomas might be thinking, I'm not going anywhere, right? If you guys are going fishing, I'm going fishing. It's, it's a fairly practical and relatable scenario to get into. But these fishermen particularly, perhaps were excited about getting back out on the water. Their life for the last three years has been a crazy whirlwind. Can you imagine the refreshing moment of getting back to everyday life? Maybe coming off of Christmas break, that's not really what happens. It's more of a, oh my goodness, why can't that be yet another week of wonderful vacation and family times and all those things? But, but there's also these other seasons too where perhaps when life becomes more intense and you have a lot of projects going on or there's, there's turmoil in the family or the neighborhood or whatever's going on, when you can come back to the simple, basic rhythms of life. I think Peter and the others were enjoying this. Let's outline the passage a little bit. In verses 1 through 3, we see a night of empty nets. Fishing was hard, tiresome work. This was not casting your line and leaving when you were done. You had heavy, large nets to throw into the water, to straighten out, to all the details of this. It would be so much more than simply a relaxed evening of fishing. So you can imagine how doubly disappointing it was when they didn't catch any fish after all that work. 
I mean, what can you really think going in to land after all of that? I mean, again, Thomas, I imagine, keeping his mouth shut. You know, he doesn't want to say anything that might upset the fishermen, but he's probably thinking, this is a pretty lousy fishing trip, you guys. I'm not very impressed with this. I think this is my last fishing trip. Even if Jesus might reappear, I'm kind of thinking if it takes this, I don't know if I want to be a part of it. Thomas is restored to fellowship. He does want to stick together. But you can kind of imagine that there's just overall a very somber, disappointing attitude as they come back in from an empty net night of fishing. In verses 4 through 8, we see the contrast then immediately is just as day was breaking, John is so good at putting some notes about just the setting of what's going on that seem really, really significant. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Doesn't it make sense that he would say, the sun was coming up, and on the beach we saw the Son of God? Like, simultaneously, as, as you, know, you, you get the, the setting presents a significance to the moment. The disciples at that moment didn't know Jesus. They didn't recognize him. They were pretty far away still. The sun was only just now coming up. And in verse 5, he calls out and he says, children, do you have any fish? And commentators like to point out that really what he's saying is, hey, lads, did you catch any bites last night? That's basically what he's saying. It's a very familiar and it's kind of the thing you say to that other guy fishing off the side of the road when you see him there and you don't know what to say. You don't know, did you catch anything, right? That kind of thing. So they kind of take it just as that. It's just familiar lingo. But it's fascinating for us when we remember that the Son of God became flesh. Right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus is here, in one sense, seeming like just any other guy. I don't know if you could hear it in my, my, my intention in reading verse 5, their answer. No. It wasn't a, no, we caught nothing. And we're totally happy about that. We're satisfied in the sufficiency of our empty nets. They're disappointed. We didn't catch anything. What a stupid question. It's really not a stupid question. But when you're riding in with an empty net, do we look like we caught anything? And then Jesus gives a simple instruction. He doesn't say, I'm a master fisherman. What you need to do is turn your boat around seven times, cast the net in once, clap your hands, do a backflip. He doesn't give you some magical formula. What does he say to do? Did you try the right side of the boat? The answer is, yeah, guy, whoever you are, of course we did. But they hadn't tried the right side of the boat in response to Jesus' instruction to try the right side of the boat. You know, you tell your kids to do something, and they say, why? And you go, I don't want to explain why to you. But maybe not even in frustration, you might say, the important thing for you is to hear what I'm saying and to do it because I've said to do it. Because I said so. Now, when Jesus says something, and, and the reason is because he said so, it's different because I can't just say, hey, kids, go clean up your room. No, we can't reach the shelf where everything goes. Well, now go and do it because I said so, and miraculously the shelf gets shorter. This is what happens when Jesus says so. Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Why? Because I'm in charge of the fish, right? I know where they are. I'm the ultimate fish finder. Have you seen those fish finders that you put on your boat? They're so funny. They're just like, it looked like a little Game Boy with little fishes floating across and little pixel art. Oh, there's a fish right there. Like, okay, well, how can you tell? You know, my brother uses this, and he's, I, he's not going to listen to the sermon, I'm sure. But 
it's really dumb. I don't get it. Maybe I just don't get it. But Jesus, on the other hand, is not just giving a vague picture of maybe what you need to do this. He's also not giving miraculous instructions that they've never heard before. He's giving instructions because he is the master of all creation. And it would be wrong for them to think that Jesus should stand aside while they're doing something like fishing. It wasn't about the method, it was about the master. That's what gospel obedience is. When we believe the gospel, we walk in obedience because Christ is in charge. Yes, your life will look different and people in the world will notice your character has changed or your circumstances, you deal with them differently or there's more joy in your life. Yeah, that's true. But the main reason that Christians walk in obedience is because Jesus said so. You're not going to motivate yourself to obey Christ more by knowing all the great benefits of what obedience brings you. You're going to motivate yourself to obedience better when you just think, Jesus is in charge and I just need to obey. And that's, oddly enough, what the guys do here when this stranger on the shore tells them, try the other side. Simple instruction. And they catch an overwhelming catch. 153. I mean, is there a significance in that number? I don't think so. Fishermen count their fish. That's significant. John says 153 large fish. This is a big catch. That's the significance. Well, interestingly enough, we come then to John realizing, hey, that's Jesus. And he tells Peter. So John discerns and Peter dives. This is just such a great picture of the contrast between these two kinds of disciples. And you could probably identify with one or the other, right? You might be the smart one that looks at him and goes, there he is right there. That's him. That's Jesus. You might also just be the one who's all heart and no brain. Sorry, that's not, that was not a nice way to say that. You might just be the one, you're, you're all so smart and you're great, okay? Man, rewind, that was terrible. Um, you might be like me, like Peter, that you, know, you feel before you think, okay? Peter jumps out of the boat and everybody else stays in the boat. Did you notice that? Because they were only about 100 yards off from land. I mean, this is a funny picture. John goes, Jesus is out there. And Peter goes, Jesus is out there. He throws his cloak on and jumps out of the boat. He's like, the boat's not going to get there fast enough. I need to get to Jesus now. There's something commendable about Peter in this. See, that's where I was going with this. It wasn't, this is a good Peter moment. This is a good moment to be like Peter, to jump out of the boat. Is this not what repentance really looks like? I need to be with Jesus right now. Yeah, listen, guy, we're going to get there. Just keep rowing. No, I'm out of here. We should all be like Peter in that sense. Well, they come to the shore, and they find a peaceful breakfast. Breakfast is already cooking. Jesus invites them to bring the fish that they've already caught, which is kind of a fun thing, because in one sense, they're enjoying the fruit of their labor, but they're also recognizing this wasn't our labor, was it? Our labor was fruitless. We were insufficient by ourselves, but when we trusted the direction of the master, we made a big catch. This is the difference between Christ's absence and Christ's presence. See, in this passage, the disciples haven't really done anything wrong. And that's good for us to point out, because they mess up a lot. And they mess up a lot because we mess up a lot. But in this case, they're not doing anything wrong by going fishing. They didn't do anything morally evil by not catching any fish all night, by completely failing in that regard. But Jesus still teaches them a, mess, a lesson about his absence versus his presence. And that 
A life absent of Christ is like an empty net after a full night's work. And a life in Christ is a life with a full net at a moment's notice, at a moment's instruction. This is the overwhelming grace, the overwhelming sufficiency of Christ. Come and have breakfast, he says. Wouldn't you love to be in that moment? This is an epilogue in a lot of ways, right? It's, it's after the fact. The story is kind of ended in John 20. But John goes, I got one more story to tell you that's really significant. We're going to tie up the loose ends with Peter's denial. And, and G- Peter's going to reconcile with Jesus in a little bit here. But John points out, Jesus kept showing up after the resurrection. Jesus may not show up and invite you to breakfast tomorrow, but he's going to be there at breakfast with you. His spirit lives inside of every believer. And this message of the contrast between his absence and his presence is incredibly important for us today. Because the Christian life post-resurrection is not a Christless life. It is not as though when we say Jesus is coming back again that he's not present right now. Both things are true. And as we're sitting in the today, it might be easier for us to say, I don't need Jesus to tell me how to fish. I don't need Jesus to tell me how to do whatever I'm going to start doing tomorrow morning at work or, or taking care of the house or whatever I might face. I don't need him to tell me those kind of things. I have bigger fish to fry huh, than that that I want him to handle. I'll take care of these little things. But in effect, not all, in our pride, when we do that, when we compartmentalize our lives like that and say, Jesus can have some of these things, I'll take care of the rest. Our pride is ugly there, not only because we're thinking something of ourselves, but we're diminishing the value of Christ. We are called to bring our unique experiences, our expertise, our knowledge, our understanding. All the things that God's gifted you with are great. But Jesus doesn't pick his disciples based on their skill sets. Praise the Lord, right? Goodness, I can say that this morning after that fumble about Peter and the brain comment. Goodness. Look to the word and not your pastor. Man. So even though we are called to bring our unique experiences and the formation of the Lord in our lives, we don't bring anything to add quality to the Christian life. My my Christian life, your Christian life, anybody's Christian life is not enhanced because of a prior deposit of wisdom, right? We all start out as baby Christians. Paul the Apostle started out as a baby Christian. He said in Philippians that even though I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, I knew the law so well, I counted all as rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. I need to throw it all away and have Christ and have all that I need. That's the message that Jesus wants to give us this morning in this passage. Jesus at the beach is presenting his watchful eye over our lives, his surprising involvement, and his sovereign rule in everything. And that gives me so much hope. My goodness, it gives me hope. In the mundane things, because those are the things we have to deal with first, right? We have to live this life. We still have to put food on the table, make the paycheck, all those mundane, non-holy kind of sounding things that sound normal. Christ wants to be involved in them. The master is ready to lead his disciples in all aspects of life and to call them to follow his lead. So are you following the lead of Christ? Are you finding that surpassing sufficiency? Do you see that your life is like that empty net apart from Christ? 
And perhaps one of the things that we need to do in order to recognize our emptiness is to see the link between the holy and the habitual. That is to say, the holy, those very Christian-y things, doing your devotions, going to church, having Bible study, those things that we set aside and say, that's where Jesus is in my life. And the habitual things being those normal, everyday activities that maybe we might roll through for hours and not even think about Jesus. His point is made clear in this passage. Life in him cannot be accomplished without him. You cannot live the Christian life without Christ. That sounds like, uh, what are we paying this guy for? No, duh, it's the Christian life. How can I live the Christian life without Christ? But I'd be willing to imagine that many of us are trying to do that more often than we'd like to admit. That we are, in fact, living the Christian life apart from Christ. And, And our message to the world, if we have the opportunity, may have more to do with our wisdom and finances, or our healthy marriages, or our parenting tips. And then at the end of that, we might also tack on, oh yeah, and I go to church, and I pray, or and I read my Bible. But really, it's some of those more practical things. And it's so easy to separate those habitual things from the holy things, as we deem them. The clear difference between Jesus' presence and absence is made in this passage. And if you're going to draw a line in your life between the holy and the habitual, you are drawing a line between his presence and his absence. And in effect, making it seem as though the presence of Christ is in moments like right now. And then when I say grace and peace, have a great week, he's gone. I sure hope that's not anyone's mindset. But more importantly, I hope it's not a trick we play on ourselves throughout the week. And again, anytime I'm throwing this stuff at you, it's because I've seen it in my own heart. I know this is a reality that I need to grapple with. Jesus doesn't intend for us to compartmentalize our lives, right? I mean, in a lot of ways, this is like me coming home from work and my wife saying, how was your day? And me saying, good. And then her saying, tell me about it. And me saying, no, you don't belong there. That's my work life. do it with all sorts of things. And keeping Christ out of different parts of our lives is an empty net. So the disciples, again, aren't doing anything wrong. But their waiting produced a valuable lesson for us. For Peter and for Zebedee's sons that were expert fishermen, even though they couldn't expect to do anything apart from Christ, apart from the presence and direction of their master. All of our habits have to be holy. And that is not to say that they need to be done with a religious mindset. But remember what holiness means. We talked about it a little bit last week. Holiness means set apart. And that is to say that there isn't like this big chunk of our lives that we take holiness and we say, this part is holy and the rest of it's for me or for the world or for whatever else. But Christ has died and given his life for your life, for the whole so that your habits might be holy. Those mundane things that don't seem spiritual. I learned something scientific this past week, which is very dangerous. Not science, but me learning science. Because then I go, that's a sermon illustration, isn't it? And they go, "Ah." (laughs) Do you know about your sympathetic and parasympathetic aspects of yourself? 
The sympathetic things that you do, like sleeping and eating, resting, hopefully talking with friends would land on that sympathetic side. It's where your body relaxes over, like the, the, your whole body kind of says, all right, we're eating right now. So rather than focusing on, you know, f- preparing muscles to, to run and to work and to do high energy things, we're preparing, you know, muscles to digest food and, you know, we're preparing the whole body to do these sympathetic things versus the parasympathetic, which again would be working or running or something that's very high intensity. Things that could be stressful that they, they may not a- attach themselves to physical activities are still parasympathetic. And what I learned about this is that your body is constantly in a tug of war trying to balance out the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. But you can only do one or the other. So right now, I think I'm parasympathetic, at least a little bit, because I'm moving my hands and stuff. Hopefully, you're in the sympathetic side, right? You're sympathizing with what a nut job I am, right? No, no, you're, you're sitting and listening, resting, contemplating, those kinds of things, right? Well, if our body is in a constant state of tug of war between these two capacities and abilities, then we need to recognize that we might be doing this subconsciously in the rest of our lives as well. We may very well be taking that parasympathetic and sympathetic approach and taking holy and habitual and putting them in different categories as though we can only do one or the other. But if we do that, our Christian lives are going to absolutely end in shipwreck. I was thinking about Demas because we're reading Pilgrim's Progress with the little kids. Little, little Pilgrim's Progress with the kids. And uh, there's one point where Christian, while he's on his journey on the straight and narrow, he comes across a guy named Demas. Which, you know, Bunyan makes this clearly an allegory. The, the main character's name is Christian, for instance, right? Uh, so there's, there's his friend Hopeful and Helpful and, you know, all those other guys. Uh, But when he takes Demas, he's actually taking a real Bible character and putting him into this imaginary story to prove a point. Demas is mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, as one who gives greetings with Paul to the Colossian church. But then in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, we see something really sad about Demas. Whereas before he was on mission with Paul and doing everything Paul was doing and doing the work of the ministry, in chapter 4 and verse 14, Paul says this about him. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord repay him according to his deeds. That's not right. That's Alexander. Oh, 410. It's 414. I apologize. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. In Pilgrim's Progress, Demas, Demas is standing outside of a silver mine mine, and he's calling Pilgrim and his friends to go into the mine and find something precious that will help them along their way. But Pilgrim knows that if they go into that mine, there's danger of poisonous fumes, there's danger of being lost, there's so many warnings about seeking worldly gain. Pilgrim has to say, no, we have to leave, but Demas was the one who took basically that notion of the holy and habitual and separated them and made shipwreck of his faith. Again, Paul's words, abandoned, he says. Loving this present world. That's the real danger between us separating these kinds of things out. It's not just that you're not going to reach Christianity level 25 by the end of the week. It's not that you're going to become, it's not a matter of you becoming so spiritual and so impressive with your life. It's a matter of life or death. It's a matter of shipwreck in regards to your faith. 
This is hard for us, though. Because in work, we're swimming in the sea of self-made success. Everyone else at work is where they are because of what they've done. And you are, in one sense, in, in your mind and interpreting everyone else around you, you're in where you are because of what you've done as well. So you come to church on Sunday and you hear all about grace and how you need to trust in Christ. And then Monday morning, the temptation hits you immediately that you need to perform. You're swimming in the sea of it. And all the other fish seem better at it than you. Or maybe there's enough fish that seem better, that seem more accomplished, seem more successful. What about at home? You might say, okay, well, this is my home. This is you know, moms or dads that you know, we, we interact with creating a home, making like a sanctuary of it and, and making a safe place where we can live and grow and nourish and all those kinds of things. But it only takes a moment to look at somebody else's home and go, oh my goodness, my home's a mess. Maybe physically or spiritually or emotionally, whatever it might be. We compare ourselves to the living standards that are set by those around us, whether intentionally or not. How about at church even? It seems that some saints are holy on their own, and so we think maybe we should be too. The problem is, is that we're supposed to see Jesus in each other when we see the goodness and the holiness and the right living, but usually what we see is just somebody we think is just better at it than we are. And so we so easily say, I'm never going to be like that guy who has a hundred Bible verses memorized, or I'm never going to be like that guy who never yells at his kids, or I'm never going to be like that guy whose grass is always cut on time, <laughs> whatever it might be. Whatever your standard is, the temptation is to look at them and say, I've been toiling all night and catching nothing, and he's got a full net. Why did he have a full net, church? Because of Jesus' instruction. Not because he found the secret. Not because he has a fish finder that he can, oh, and here they all are. Because Jesus ordained it, and so he does for our lives. He doesn't intend for a competitive attitude amongst his people to say, well, boy, this guy is this way and I'm that way. No, that's not how we're supposed to consider each other, but we do it so easily. We toil all night and catch nothing. And we find the danger of separating the holy and the habitual as though Christ is not enough or not worth the whole. That's why we sang, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. So we need to turn to the one who inexhaustibly provides for our needs. I mean, if you look at the, the overall story of our passage this morning, they went out fishing for the night. What, what, what else were they going to do in one sense? The story ends with breakfast. I don't imagine that eight guys or nine guys ate 153 fish that morning. Did you notice that? Peter's not a fisherman anymore. The sons of Zebedee are not fishermen, and Thomas is definitely not a fisherman. They don't need those fish. They've already been told that they're going to go on mission and proclaim the gospel to the nations. They don't need the fish. So why 153? Because if you divide it by 12 and multiply it by 7, no. It's 153 to show the overwhelming abundance of Christ in comparison to your work. What did the disciples need in regards to fish? Breakfast. Jesus gave them meals for the week. He overwhelmingly provides for us. They realized that the carpenter was a better fisherman than any of them because he was more than a carpenter, as the book says, because of his sovereignty, his sufficiency, and his grace. The Lord of the fish in the Sea of Tiberias 
is able to say, you all go right there on the right side of the boat and wait. He's then able to tell the disciples, cast your net on the right side. And his grace is evident in all of that because of his work at the cross. Christ calls us to turn to him, turn to his inexhaustible provision, his surpassing sufficiency because of what he's done at the cross. Because he's taken our sin, our empty nets, our efforts of toiling all night long and resulting in nothing. And he has super supplied righteousness for us at the cross. Our nets yield emptiness, but the empty tomb yields abundant life. We just sang, what love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, he knows everything. He counts not their sum. They're thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Peter knew this. He may not have known the conversation that's coming that we'll look at next week, Lord willing, but he knew that when Jesus was on the beach, what he needed to do was throw on his cloak to be dressed and ready to see his master. And that a hundred yards in a boat wasn't fast enough. He dove after Christ head first. And Christ's mercy abounded. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. So Christ is present with us in our work, in our habits, in all of our things, because that mercy that covered your sin covers all the rest of life too. That's the icing on top. No habit need be unholy. We can find the substance of whatever this life requires in Christ alone. Even if tomorrow the only step you take is to say, Lord, I got a big pile of paperwork to fill out. Please help me to be accurate. Who is the Lord of accuracy? Who's the God of all order in creation who holds all things together by the word of his power? Can you not lean on him to help you fill out some paperwork? Lord, I have to have a really hard conversation with a fellow employee I don't know how I can do this to proclaim truth, but be patient. Or, Who is the one who is most patient with you in your sin? Who is the one who proclaims truth so perfectly that it cuts between the division of bone and marrow and so orders your life according to his word? Can you not look to him in any moment at any challenge? It's fascinating here, too. Because Jesus is not calling them just to say, add Jesus into your life and, and let me be a part of all of your own goals. He's putting them on mission, too. Spurgeon pointed this out. I would have never got this. Did you notice the net wasn't broken? I got that, right? I read that part. And you notice the difference, again, to Luke 5, when Peter pulls his net up and the net breaks because there's so many fish in it. Why did the net not break this time? It might have been for a very practical reason. Spurgeon points out that it seems that Peter, who left his nets, his broken nets behind, remember, he's not a fisherman by trade anymore, he left those behind, he had to have borrowed this net. He needed to return that net to somebody else who was ordained to be a fisherman after that. And the net wasn't broken. Peter doesn't have to go back to that guy and go, hey, sorry about your net. Maybe you should become an apostle, right? No, he can go back and return that net. 
Because his, his life is not in the fish anymore. Do you remember what Peter did at first, that, that first time when he got that first miraculous catch? He fell on his face and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. His word changed, his, his actions changed so much in this passage. Because when he recognizes Christ at the beach, he doesn't say, Oh, depart from me. He runs to him because Christ is present in his life, because he knows the overwhelming mercy that Christ inv invites him to live in and that prepares him for a greater mission than what he set his life out to be as a fisherman before. All right, last thing. Find Christ in all of life and be equipped for his mission. Before the Father, a life that is listening in each step of life to the voice of the Son is the difference between an empty net and an abundant catch. Listening to the voice of the Son. Have you prioritized that in your life? Why is it that I give you the goofy Bible reading plan so that you can listen to the voice of the Son every day? And it helps when we do it together. Because Peter, pulling up the fish, wow, 153, where'd this come from? And John taps him on the shoulder and says, it's the Lord, doofus, right? He didn't say doofus, but it's just funny. You know, Peter's just, wow, and John's going, hold on a second here. And sometimes we need somebody else next to us to say, have you considered what Christ tells us about this, about this kind of situation of life? We should be self-aware of our sympathetic and parasympathetic activities. And so we should try to, the way that doctors say, or at least this is what I heard again, that you're supposed to try to deal with stress is to, to take a more holistic approach, to recognize, you know, this need for balance in your life. And so we do need to take our holy things in life and our habit things in life and bring them together under the Lordship of Christ. We need to do that because the mission is bringing lost sheep to the shepherd. And we can do that knowing that we have a perfect rest, that Christ's work is finished at the cross. Jesus is sitting on the beach waiting for us to come in with the catch that he's led us into. That's a wonderful hope, a wonderful promise of fellowship in the moment to moment of, of this mission that we're living in. But it's also a great picture of the end goal. The end goal when you reach the heavenly shore, as it were, is to bring in that overwhelming net and to rejoice in breakfast with Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. You know, again, I talked about my last fishing trip. I was a spectator. Got to watch my daughter catch a fish. That was really exciting. We saw an eagle a couple times. Really cool. But fishing is not a spectator sport. I mean, it's barely a sport at all, if we're honest here. But today, it's not a spectator sport. Nobody goes on the boat and just watches somebody else fish. The only thing more boring than fishing is watching someone else fish. So it is with the mission of Christ. Can you imagine coming to church every Sunday morning and saying, okay, I heard all that kind of stuff. I like all these people. See you next week. Oh, maybe we can imagine that all too well. Maybe I can imagine that all too well. Maybe we need to stop and say, no, I got to get a fishing pole in my hands. This illustration's going nowhere. We need to put our hands to the work. We need to be about the mission that Christ has for us because that is where we find his sufficiency. That's where we find our equipment for this, these things that he has for us to do. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence when I'm with you and you're obeying, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
It's one of my favorite passages. Because it takes that parasympathetic and the sympathetic issue and brings them together and says, what do you need to do? Do the work that God's called you to as obedient servants of Christ. Why do you do it, though? Because he's at work within you. To will and to do for what? For his good pleasure. Hey, good catch, guys. Bring it in. Put it on the fire. It's funny that Jesus might say, good catch, when he was the one who was providing it all along. It's funny that at the end, we hope to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, when all the well dones in our lives are his doing and not our own. So, three ways that we can find Christ and be equipped for mission. If we can find Christ in our work, he can equip us with faithfulness. Just for one thing. Secondly, if we can find Christ at home, he can equip us for righteousness. He can equip us to have a stronger temper in those moments with your four-year-old. He can equip us for compassionate moments with our spouses. He can equip us for patience as there's another hole in the roof. Whatever we might face, he can equip us with righteousness for those things. Lastly, when we find Christ in church, he equips us for mission together. Now, we need to really consider our last song because our last song is that great hymn, I Surrender All. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Is there not a danger in us giving God lip service while our hearts are far from him with these kinds of words? Will you truly surrender all to Christ this morning? Do you need a moment to think about that? I'm going to ask you in a moment, like we always do, stand up, sing this song with us. But this is what we're going to sing. And your neighbor sitting next to you is going to sing these words. I don't want to say don't sing them because by his grace, we can honestly say, Lord, with whatever ounce of sincerity is in my heart, I rely on your grace alone to surrender my life to you. Let's pray to that end together, would you? Lord, we thank you this morning for the superabounding sufficiency of Christ to cover all of the holy in our life and all of the habitual, all of the little habits that seem unnecessary or unimportant, Lord, they are important to you. And we thank you that you don't meet us in them and say, why don't you do this in a Christian way, but rather, why don't you do this in a way that depends on me for everything? Oh Lord, what a wonderful hope we have that everything you call us to, you equip us for. As Augustine prayed, command what you will, give what you command. So that as we say, we surrender all. There is no storehouse, there is no secret treasure chest that we've buried in our backyards of our hearts to say, this is mine, you can't touch it. Help us this morning to lay all before you and to trust you for your provision in all things. We thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen.